Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to On the Ball with Rick Buecher. Here's your host. Let's send it over to Rick Buecher. Rick Buecher. This is On the Ball on the United Wecast Network, and I am Rick Buecher. You can see me on FS1, hear me on Fox Sports Radio, and you can read me on the Fox Sports app and at foxsports.com. You can also follow me on X, the former Twitter, Instagram, and threads at Rick Buecher. I'm a lot of places, but there's only one place you can hear me talking about story angles and perspectives that you are not likely to find anywhere else, primarily but not exclusively involving the NBA, and that is here. So, I've got a lot going on right now. By the end of the month, I should be free to announce the new book that I'm writing. Just waiting for the contract to be signed, T's crossed, I's dotted, first check received, etc., it's funny, I've written two books so far, biographies on Yao Ming and Brian Grant, and you can find them on Amazon if you're interested. And every time I'm done with a book, I think, I don't want to go through that again. It is certainly rewarding to say you've written a book, but the process is as arduous as anything I've done. It sounds glamorous sometimes it even feels glamorous but the real work of it is it's a grind and just getting to the starting line which is essentially what i've done is incredibly challenging there's coming up with an idea or concept researching to see if anything like it has been done how well or poor similar books have done then finding an agent, working through the idea with the agent, selling the agent essentially on this idea. Then writing an overview, which is usually five to ten pages, on what the book is about, what inspired you to write it, and why you are the one to do it. And then a chapter-by-chapter chapter outline that contains enough material again, several pages for each chapter, to show off your wordsmithing, researching, and organizing skills. This is all work done without knowing if a publisher will even look at it, much less be interested in buying it. If anyone is interested, a no-promises call is set up in which you have to explain what audience you can reach, how it can be marketed, who and what you plan to include in the book beyond what the overview and chapter outline might share, 
and basically convince them that you're somebody that they would want to work with and that you can pull off this grand idea plan that you have for this book and that it's going to sell and that you can help sell it. So then if all that goes well and somebody actually offers to buy it, the real work begins. And that's where I am now. The real work has begun. I have a year to finish this, the book that is, and then comes the job after the book is done of promoting it and marketing it with interviews, book signings, appearances, etc. Now, I consider all of this a privilege. I do. Don't get me wrong. But, but it is exhausting. And with this particular book, there are a number of ancillary projects that the publisher is hoping, hoping to partner on in conjunction with the book. So this is going to be a longer, I don't know, off-ramp, if you will, longer than anything I've done before. Which is why, when all of that is over, I have had the tendency of saying, I don't want to go through that again. And then some time passes, I come up with an idea, I kind of get the itch of doing something grand, and I imagine that idea coming to fruition. And I forget what it was like, or I tell myself it wasn't that bad. You survived. Look how good you feel about having accomplished that, or that book sitting on the shelf, whatever. So that's where I am. All right, on to the podcast. Podcast in this episode, I want to address two, two topics. What NBA teams owe their superstars? And if we can get to it, LeBron James' recent comments about both the Lakers and his son Bronny's NBA readiness. I'm saving the LeBron perspective for the end so that A, I don't have to put it in the title, and be accused of using LeBron's polarizing popularity to attract an audience, if that's the, only, that's the only reason that I would be addressing it, as if that would be. And B, those of you who don't appreciate any critical assessment of what LeBron does, if he is untouchable in your mind or simply receives way too much criticism for someone who's done all that he's done, you can just not listen to the last part of the podcast if we get to it. All right, so let's get to the first topic, which in a way also involves LeBron, but more so is inspired by what I've heard concerning Steph Curry and the Golden State Warriors. I don't know how or when exactly the media and fans demanding that a struggling team with a superstar owes it to the superstar to build a championship roster around them where that started, especially if that superstar already has a championship under his belt. But it seems to be pretty automatic now. The first time we heard it was not long after Kevin Durant left the Warriors and Klay Thompson was out with the first of his two major injuries and the financial investment that comes with retaining championship caliber stars finally hit owner Joe Lacob's wallet and their salary cap standing. It wasn't year one after all that happened, but only because Curry played five games that year. But by year two, I was already hearing questions raised by the media, by fans, about the Warriors potentially wasting Curry's excellence, his final years, and raising the question if he would be better served 
going someplace else. Now, that latter part is probably a, in part a byproduct of the summer of 2010 and the rise in player empowerment. Stars taking short-term deals in order to have a voice in how their team should be built and then using free agency to dicta dictate how their next team was built. On the face of it, with Curry in particular, it's insane to think Curry needs to go someplace else. He needs to leave the franchise that he went to five consecutive finals with that helped him or created a team in which he could go to five consecutive finals with. But now he should go find someplace that's better. Someplace is going to be better. The place that what other team has gone to five consecutive finals recently? Can, can you name one? Because I can't. That's, that's the insanity of that idea. And I, I really, I don't know if I addressed it at the time, but it still, it sticks in my craw that that even became a thing. We've become so enthralled with the prospect of stars changing addresses that we've lost all manner of critical thinking. There is no thought to, well, is the place he's going any better than the place he is? Do they know how to build a championship roster better than the place that he is? Or are we assuming that the player knows what he needs? So he's going with that knowledge. Well, if so, then why wouldn't he provide it for the existing place? Or maybe it's, wow, they had to spend all that money to pay all those players that won championships. Now we should move on to a place that has cap room. <laughs> I mean, it doesn't get much more self-serving than that. And this idea that the player knows, you know, the player knows so much about the game and what it takes to win. It's maybe one of the most delusional things I've ever heard. And that's not a knock on players. Understand, almost all players are expert in how to do certain things on a basketball court. Some players understand how to do certain things on the basketball court that lead to winning consistently and then there are a handful of players who understand how a team must function in order to win this is a very small group but in terms of the culture how it operates day to day what the chemistry is like players who have experienced that and paid attention they understand that they can see the big picture as far as what goes on on the court and in the locker room but I don't know how many players understand the game, the functions of a team, the ins and outs of the salary cap, the politics of the league, working with the business side of a franchise, communicating and strategizing with an owner, and building a sustainable long-term financial plan. And without understanding and being adept at all those things, or more accurately, simply focusing on one element among those things, such as who is on the roster in a given season? A team and a GM leave themselves wide open to making critical mistakes that could impact the franchise for years, competitively and financially. And yet, we hear media and fans constantly screaming for GMs and teams to do that very thing, to make decisions based on this short-term idea. That's not even a guarantee. 
It's still a roll of the dice. Roll the dice and push all the chips to the middle of the table to see what you can get. Now, when it comes to players understanding this stuff, it's not a matter of intelligence. It's a matter of time and perspective and experience. I'm sure Stephen Curry, LeBron James, Giannis Antetokounmpo, Joel Embiid, Kawhi Leonard, Nikola Jokic, just to name a few superstars with the pull to make certain de demands, are all smart enough to do all those things were they given the time. But that's what they don't have. They've got their own interests to handle, their main job to take care of, which is being in peak ability to perform on the court. And they also have personal and professional relationships that might cloud their judgment or influence them to make choices that serve them, but not necessarily the franchise as a whole. I have to laugh every time I see a fan suggests that the players and the coaches should be the ones that are selecting all-star teams or all-NBA teams. Have you ever looked at the voting done by players? Players don't put in any time in, in terms of studying what's going on in the league, and they're very much skewed by their own experiences. They don't have a big, big picture in most cases, there are some exceptions, but I look this might sound self-serving, but the media are in the best, the right media are in the best position to be voting on all this stuff because we don't have any dogs in the fight. And because our job is to look at the league as a whole for the most part. Now there has, uh, I will admit there is a certain faction within the media today that seem to be very inclined to supporting the players that they cover closest to make sure that they have access. That is all kinds of wrong. And I wish that something could be done about it. it wasn't the case when I first came in. This is a new phenomenon. And it, it hurts me to admit it and to see it. But I don't know that that faction is the majority. I think it's actually a, a minority that doesn't necessarily skew things, but it's there. And seeing it, and I'm sure aware fans are, are seeing it as well, that that skews and that gives a negative impression of all of us in the business. That's, that's my primary reason for not wanting to see it or not wanting it to be allowed. So I don't get the sense that any of this, what I've just talked about in terms of all those elements, that any of that was taken into consideration by those who get on a soapbox and talk about how a team owes a superstar to make moves right now that assure the team has a shot at playing for a championship. But the reality, ignoring all those other considerations Simply to give the superstar a chance at a ring in a given season is negligence and irresponsibility of the highest order. It wouldn't be so bad if those same voices, when a championship is not won, and a franchise then pays the price for going for it. I'm thinking of the Lakers last year and all the moves they made, and then they re-signed everybody. We'll get to that in a second. But those voices that demand that, if they would acknowledge when it doesn't work and that it puts 
the franchise behind the eight ball going forward, that they would acknowledge that their campaign was wrongheaded, or at least refrain from then criticizing the franchise or GM or collective team for the subsequent swoon caused by pushing all those chips to the middle of the table. But that's not what happens. More often than not, more moves are demanded, as if draft picks and talent and cap space grow on trees, as if they're available like Monopoly money. Look at the Lakers right now. GM Rob Palenka made some very shrewd moves to acquire several pieces at the trade deadline, the last deadline, that helped them make the playoffs and, and reach the Western Conference Finals, unexpectedly. Rui Hachimura, Malik Beasley, Jared Vanderbilt, and D'Angelo Russell were at the head of the list of the new acquisitions. And then there was an outcry to retain all those pieces along with Austin Reeves. Run it back. We're going to go even further. Which Palinka did, all save Beasley, who went to the Milwaukee Bucks, and he replaced him with Gabe Vincent from the Miami Heat, who had just gone to the finals, Gabe Vincent being a big part of that. But now... Now that the Lakers have a losing record, now there are complaints. Now that the Lakers are in the exact same place that they were a year ago, record-wise, at this point. And granted, it's not so much about Palinka, but about the players that were signed. Even Reeves is getting some flack for the first time, which is what happens when you go from undrafted overachiever on a two-way contract to making $12 million per. Now... Were those shrewd moves in terms of re-signing all those players? Is it paying off and making the Lakers title contenders this year? Does it pave the way for future success? Now, I like all those players for various reasons, but I don't see a player among them that is going to appreciably improve or is capable of being a centerpiece to a great team after LeBron is gone. And except for D'Lo, all of them are under contract for at least two more years after this. Now, they're, they're all at reasonable numbers, but the current mediocrity we're seeing from the team feels fairly baked in for the next few years. I don't see how you're going to translate the players they have into the kind of stars they need, even if you aggregate a couple of those players. You're going to have to get incredibly lucky to get a young player who then blossoms. Now what's crazy is this idea that the Lakers should go back to the well and reconfigure this team again and go get a Zach Levine or DeJounte Murray, both on contracts that are $30 million plus for the next three or four years. Guys that have never had notable postseason success and offer no promise of being the kind of guys who could lead a team there. Because the one thing that seems to be missing here is it's all about right now with LeBron right now. And if Rob Palenka is really doing his job, he's got to be looking past LeBron. He's got to be looking at what do I do? What's my team going to look like the second that LeBron steps off? Because that could happen in a year now. I know there's been talk about him playing for the next four or five years. It doesn't really matter. At the level that he's playing now, he needs talent around him. And can you get enough talent that it makes a difference? They did it last year, and they were able to get to the conference finals. 
LeBron is not getting younger. Those players are not getting better. The West is getting tougher. So you do the math. How do you get how do you get back on top with where they are right now and with the way the landscape is in the Western Conference? But let's get one of them, one of those guys, Levine or Murray, for this season because because what? I don't know if anyone else has noticed, but scoring is the one thing that LeBron still does well. He's working off the ball more than ever because he's not creating anything for anybody. Shots, opportunities are now being created for him, utilizing his, his basketball IQ, his ability to move, uh, and the attention that others on the team are drawing. His usage rate, the amount, which is the amount he has the ball in his hands, essentially, is the lowest this year that it's been since his second year in the league. So I'm not exactly sure what DeJounte Murray or Zach Levine add to the equation, or, or perhaps more important, what they guarantee for the future. It would be much smarter at this point, and Lakers fans are, definitely don't want to hear this, but it would be much smarter at this point if Palinka utilized those ancillary pieces, which are on good contracts, and flipped them into young players and draft picks by moving them to teams that are either trying to solidify their playoff position or they're trying to get that one last piece in order to move up and be title contenders. It would be the responsible thing would be to get ready for the winter that is coming with LeBron aging out and or retiring. And it would mean downshifting this season, which considering how fiercely competitive the West is this year, seems like the smartest move Palinka and the Lakers could make for the good of the franchise. This is what really good franchises do. They don't just plan and execute for now. They're thinking down the road as well. But what if, let's say, devil's advocate here, what if that prompts LeBron to opt out of his contract and go elsewhere? Where exactly do you think LeBron is going? Do you really think he wants to spend a year somewhere away from his family, away from his business interests? I've been assured he's not leaving LA, that he'll persuade Palinka to draft Bronny so they can play together and not have to leave home. So if I'm Palinka, I sell LeBron on this. LeBron, I'm going to start a rebuild and I'm going to move some of our veteran pieces, but I'm doing it to clear the way for drafting Bronny and assuring him solid playing time next season so that you guys can actually be on the court together as much as possible. Because if I don't do that, if I don't move those pieces, if we keep this team as is, then I'll only have a second round pick to use to get Bronny. And the better we are, the lower that pick is going to be. And I don't want to get stuck where I have to pay a ransom to move up in the draft just so I can get Bronny. That's not good for the team overall. That's not good for the start of Bronny's career and the two of you playing together. So my perspective on this, by the way, is shaped by the research for a piece that I'm writing that I've done that will be out on foxsports.com about Bronny and how scouts and executives view him as an NBA prospect. 
and that piece should be out in the next in the next week or so. But that's where I'm going. I'm selling LeBron on if you want to take the rest of the year off, whatever you want to do this year, feel free. But we need to hit the reset button. And I'm doing it so that the experience that you and Bronny can have is the best it can be. That's my sales pitch. Now, I'm also doing it because I need to have an eye toward what my team is going to be like once LeBron is done in a year or two. Now, about Curry. For those who may not be aware, Curry is the seventh highest paid player in the league. He and Kevin Durant are the only ones in the top 25 paid players, that is, that are more or older than 30 years old. The Warriors have the highest player payroll by far in the league, nearly $25 million more than the number two team, the Los Angeles Clippers. The Warriors are a perfectly mediocre offensive team, and they are not a good defensive team despite spending all that money, not to mention the future draft picks that they spent. They currently do not have a first or second round pick in the 2024 draft. My point being, this idea that the Warriors have ever somehow not done right by Curry or owe him something is one of the sillier positions or arguments I've ever heard. And what makes it truly aggravating is that none of it has come from Curry. He has not said one peep about leaving or wanting the Warriors to do something or in any way being unhappy or dissatisfied. Now, maybe there are those in the media or fans who feel he's too nice of a guy to do that, and it's their duty to speak up on his behalf. Well, no, it's not their duty. And they're actually doing more harm than good. Because if they truly appreciated Curry, they wouldn't want to put him in the category of stars who hold their teams hostage to do what serves them. He's been successful just fine without doing that. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. The advocacy of player empowerment has gone way too far. If anyone thinks that doing whatever a superstar player asks is the best way to run a franchise. It absolutely is not. For the reasons I mentioned earlier about big picture perspective and doing right by all the factions that have a stake in a franchise. The situation with Curry is particularly complicated because doing what's best for the franchise is not doing anything that I imagine Curry would like. It begins with moving Clay Thompson for whatever the Warriors can get. He is making $43 million this year, more than 31% of the Warriors player payroll, and he is certainly not carrying a third of the weight in making the Warriors a winning franchise. He might be carrying a third of the weight, but it's not, not well enough to win. And if we hadn't already heard indications that he expects to get paid at a similar level and still thinks he can get back to what he once was, I might feel different. 
If he were willing to be like Grant Hill in Phoenix or Jason Kidd in Dallas, molding his role and what he's still able to do around other players taking a more featured role, I'd look for a way to keep him in the fold. I don't want to get rid of Clay just to get rid of Clay. I can't get I can't keep Clay a Clay that thinks that he should get paid and is still the same Clay. I'd like to keep him for the culture as well as a notice to every other player in the league that we Golden State take care of our players. But when a player appears detached from reality, then it's time for a franchise to detach from him. His comeback story was a fantastic one, but it is past time to move on. Clay is holding on to an image of himself that he no longer can fill, and it's frustrating for both him and the team. And I certainly don't want to face the headache of having to offer him something that would be commensurate with his current value this summer. Because it's not going to be that that number commensurate with his current value is nowhere close to what he's expecting, if he's expecting anything close to what he's getting paid right now. I would make that offer, the offer that is commensurate with his current value, if I thought there was a chance he'd accept it and wouldn't be insulted and that it wouldn't come blow up in our faces and if he were willing to come off the bench. But as of right now, the vibe I get is Clay still thinks he's worth more than all that. So, just in case all that I've said here isn't clear, no, a team does not owe a player, any player, or any coach to go to the wall, sparing no expense, ignoring the future, acting as if there is no tomorrow, to put enough talent around them that they are capable of pursuing a championship every single year. Both the Lakers and Warriors have already gone above and beyond for LeBron and Stefan. They are paying them top dollar. They have spent future resources to improve the team. And in case you were wondering, yes, the Lakers are also way over the cap, $44 million worth. And owner Jeannie Buss does not have the deep pockets that Lakeup has. So for her, $44 million is like the $90 million that Lakeup is over. Following a plan that maximizes a team's chance of being consistently great and vying for titles is what is owed, which doesn't mean every year. It means having a plan so that you can ring that bell as often as possible. That is what a responsibility, the responsibility is for a GM and for a team to the fans to ownership, to all the business entities and partners that depend on the health and popularity of a team. Stefan has certainly already enjoyed that as much or more than any star in recent memory. The Lakers have certainly not been shy about retooling their team to fit LeBron's needs and desires as well. And yes, they've done it because from a business standpoint, it has made sense. In LA in particular, you, kinda, you have to stay relevant and right now, they're risking a dramatic fall once LeBron leaves. But that's their business choice, not an obligation. Anyone who tries to tell you otherwise does not understand how a truly successful franchise works. All right, last item, 
And that's on LeBron saying that the Lakers sucked recently and saying that Bronny could play for them right now. And I actually asked some of the people that I'm talking to about about Bronny that they're like, yeah, you know what? He, he, he is an NBA prospect. He has the capability of playing at the NBA level. And could he play minutes? Yes, he could for the Lakers. That's not, it's not out of bounds that, that LeBron would say that, even though Bronny just recently had his first start, went 0 for 7, struggled mightily. Got to keep in mind, this is a kid who just went through a heart issue. He's still making his way back from that. He's not the player that he's capable of being at this point. What's going to get really interesting is if it reaches a point where Bronny would be better served spending another year in college, how LeBron is going to handle that. Does he want to do that? Now, here's my belief, or at least it was my belief. Well, I was told this years ago by Mike Dunleavy Jr. when he was still playing, which was, if you could go to the NBA and you were guaranteed to play 20, 25 minutes a game, if you had that kind of a role, going to the NBA was much more valuable than staying in college. I would imagine the number has been reduced in terms of average minutes now that the G League is a thing. I believe that going to the G League, playing against that competition, is going to develop a player faster than if they stay in college. That's the game side of things, their, their ability to play the game. When it comes to maturing and all of the off-the-court development, the emotional IQ, all of that, college might be better suited for that. That's something that I'm going to have to explore in talking to people further now that the G League is a thing, whether there is enough cultural exposure, exposure to different things outside the basketball world that create a balanced human being. And don't think that that's not important when it comes to surviving the ups and downs of being in the NBA. How balanced your life is, how balanced you are as a person is an important part of the equation. I have real issue with LeBron saying, it's one thing to believe it, but saying publicly, Bronny could play for us right now. That is such a massive insult to the players in that locker room. You're not going to get anybody to say it. You're not going to get anybody to call LeBron out on it, not from the Lakers and probably not from the media outside of me. But... It is, it is so insulting to those guys in that locker room who know how hard it is to make the NBA and are doing everything they can to stay in the NBA and make the Lakers a winning franchise. And LeBron's going to talk about his son who's a freshman at USC and just got his first start and went 0 for 7 and say, that guy's better than some of the guys in this locker room. Because that's essentially what he said. It can be said... LeBron can believe it. It can even be true. But don't, for a second, try to sell me on the idea that that is leadership. What good does saying that do for the Lakers? How does that inspire that locker room? How does that bring that locker room closer together? It's not. It doesn't. So, 
again, it's one more of those instances where LeBron doing or saying something that does not match up with what his supporters, his advocates, the image that has been tried to, that has been created of him. This flies in the face of that. And if you think I'm nitpicking at LeBron, just give me an example where Michael Jordan, Kobe Bryant, Steph Curry, go down the list. Any of those guys did or said something. The guys that we talk about at the top of the top, not, not just at the top of the top, the guys that we look at as great players and great leaders. Show me one of those guys who talked about someone outside of their locker room being better than the guys who are in it. I'll wait. I'm here. <laughs> you know how to reach me. I gave you all the ways, all the places I'm available at the top of the podcast. All right, that does it for this episode of On the Ball on the United WeCast Network. Please rate and review the show on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. In the next episode, I really, if I can get to this quickly, I want to talk about the matchup that we just saw. The Jokic versus Joel Embiid. It was a joy. It felt like a throwback. Not just because it was two bigs going at each other, but it was two guys at the top of their games going head-to-head guarding each other at critical moments, clearly trying to show that they could counter what the other one was doing. And there was great respect there. It's something that I used to see on a regular basis in the NBA that has now too often gone missing. That's what made it great. And I want to get into potentially, again, if I can get to it quickly enough before it's dated, just what it means and what it would mean to see those two face each other for the NBA or in the NBA Finals for a championship. So ideally, that is in the next podcast and it will be coming up sooner rather than later. In the meantime, as always, thanks for listening. <laughs>